afternoon. Hello, hello. I'm Savannah. I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. You made it. You waited the whole week. And here we are, ready for part two. Alicia, are you ready to deliver? I'm ready. <gasps> I'm so excited. Okay. So do you want to get, do you want to give the recap? Um, so, uh, I can try, but I'm not very good at this because I do this in D&D every week. They're like, who wants to recap last week? And I'm like, not me. But <laughs> basically, we have a man named John Orr, and he, um, was really mean to his wife. And then... Wives. Wives, all three of them. <laughs> I was going to say, and then he divorced her, and then he got another, he got other wives. But in his wives all say he really likes to have candles during sex and then <laughs> sexy time he um joined the the air force fire department and then he hated that and then he became a regular firefighter and he loved that so much that he became the arson investigator he wasn't a very good firefighter but he was a really good arson investigator and then all of a sudden in California, all of the where where he is, all these fires started popping up, and they were all popping up with matches, a cigarette, and some paper, yellow lines, notebook paper, yep, around them, and they would be set in stores yeah. around like pillows or blankets or foams or sleeping bags, yes. and therefore he was dubbed the Pillow Pyro. Yes. And so where we left off last, there was a new detective on the block. Yes, from the ATF. They got involved. Named Marvin. Oh, Marvin Casey Casey. was one of the arson investigators from Bakersfield where some of the fires took place. Okay. But he remained in touch and like worked with the ATF agents once they got involved because he had a hunch that it was one of their own. All he needed was a hunch and a dream, and here we are. But up until this point, they had ran prints. They had one fingerprint from one of the fires on the yellow-lined paper. Yes. And up until this point, none of the fingerprints of various firefighters that he had narrowed it down to the list of people who had, had attended the investigators' conferences throughout the years... None of them matched. So. But now that more fires have taken place and the ATF is involved again, they run it from a different b- database. Mm-hmm. And some of the prints from that database, because this time they ran it against all of the police and firefighters who have ever applied within a certain you know number of yeah. years, who ever applied Obviously, there's some overlap. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they would have then been matching them because obviously, if these guys that attend the investigator conferences, their fingerprints are in the database of people who have applied. Yeah. But it's a different set of prints because this wasn't really spelled out in my sources, but I'm guessing that throughout the years, for various reasons, just like I know when I used to be a preschool teacher, you had to get a background check every so many years. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you stayed at the same job yeah, and whatever, you had to get your fingerprints done and get a background check every mm-hmm. so often. So they were comparing that print that they had on the device from the 1987 fire to some other prints that I 
think that this may be presumptuous of me, but I kind of feel like if somebody's already been a firefighter or police officer for so many years, and then you're kind of doing that just out of like formalities of, hey, we got to do the fingerprints every so many years, you're probably not being as super careful when taking their print Mm -hmm. as you would be when they're first applying and you don't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. So I kind of question if that's the reason that this happened the way that it did. Facts. I mean, it could have just been as simple as it was just like a weird day. Like, yeah, who and, knows? But either way, either way, they were running prints on, they were running the prints against, you know, a smaller database with more recent prints, and then they ran it against the an large, older database. Yes. Yeah, an older database with older prints. And they had some overlapping there. So Yeah. Some of the suspects overlapped. But this time, no surprise here, John Orr's fingerprint from the time of his application matched. Da-da-da! Cliffhanger over. (laughs) Yes. Now, that surprised the ATF agents, I think. But it didn't necessarily surprise everyone. There were those who had already been suspicious of John. I kind of touched on that a little bit in the first episode. Because between his love of the limelight in the media and his uncanny ability to arrive at scenes and find points of origin faster than anyone else. Mm, convenient. Just shows up and knows where it is. I mean, there was a lot of other little details th- that we don't have time to get into, but like, yeah. There were things, and there were things that I'm sure some of the people were like, oh, crap. You know, now that I know that he's the one, I think about this time and that time, and he said this or he did that. I'm sure there was a lot of that going on, too. Well, you know, hindsight is always 2020. Yes. So anyway, if you you want more details, obviously listen to part one. If you haven't listened to part one and you're popping in, that's weird. Don't do that. Go listen to part one first. (laughs) Go listen to Uh, part one Because you're going to be very confused, especially when I start talking about Paul Blart. (laughs) Which may or may not come up again. It's definitely going to come up again. So nevertheless, they sifted through all the possibilities, including whether John had assisted at all on the cases from Bakersfield and accidentally got his print on the device. Okay. Investigator Casey assured them that John Orr was never on his cases in Bakersfield and never handled that evidence. He said, no, I know because I'm the only one who handled it and I put it in an envelope. Yes, exactly. We talked about the envelope. <laughs> Listen, that's probably all he had to put in. I know. So the ATF agent contacted John and asked if a couple of his investigators could attend a class that John had been teaching. But while he had him on the line, he casually asked him if he'd be attending the next arson investigation conference. Sorry, arson investigation conference. And when John confirmed that he would and said, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be be there. there. I'm going to be there with my chest hair out. (laughs) Um, and mustache. <laughs> the agent then asked him more details about when he was leaving, what route he was going to take. And he basically told him that it was like, we're obviously still investigating on the pillow pyro thing. So we want you to be on the lookout. 
So I, I'm just asking, yeah. you know, kind of like I'm asking everybody to see what routes will be covered so that we can like be on the lookout for the pillow pyro. Yeah. Just got to be on the lookout, man. He just needs a mirror. <laughs> As the investigation began pulling together, one of the firefighters that had been suspicious of John realized that it was possible that John had actually tried to set him up. <gasps> oh. John had given him some illegal fireworks that upon further inspection had the same exact time delay device on them that had been used in some of the brush fires where John was so quick to the scene and immediately knew where the point of origin was. Hmm. Convenient. Okay, so that firefighter obviously gave the fireworks and notified the ATF agents that, hey, I got these from. Yeah. From John Orr, which just added to the evidence piling up against John. The ATF agents are working on it. They're, yeah. They're waiting for their time. They've got the pie, the box of paperwork <laughs> with all of their evidence. Yes. Now, I'm not really going to get into too much of it, but basically, uh, I'll just break down. Like, they obviously, they tried to track him to the conference because they knew... Okay, your print matches. We have all this evidence piling up. They tried to track John to the conference. Because he's been setting fires like on his way to on and his from way places. To and from those conferences. That makes sense. So at one point, though, they put a tracking device on him, on his car yeah. as well. He finds it. Ah. And he drives to a local police station and tries to play it off like he thinks it's a bomb. He doesn't know what it is. Thank goodness, because they also had agents following him. They yeah. kind of only put the tracker on him as a backup. Yeah, because they lose him. When he goes in to talk to the police chief or whoever, federal agents, the ATF agents, call the station. And somebody literally comes outside while the chief is... Standing there looking at the device on the car with John, and they say, you have an emergent telephone call. And he's like, okay, I'll be right back. He goes in, takes the call. They're like, uh, this is the ATF. That's a tracker. He's a suspect, an arson suspect. Yeah. We need you to- Not tell him that- Yeah. We need you to not figure this out, right? So the guy goes out, and I forget exactly- it, the story is in the book that's in my sources, so if you want the details on it, I suggest uh, reading the whole book. But he he takes the d device off. He's like, oh, it's probably just a prank or something, I think is what he said. Yeah. And they take the device off. But they still tail him. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. So as all of that is going on, he manages to get away and do his business. But... <clears throat> this is where it gets fun. It's already been so fun. I'm excited. Unbeknownst to anyone except one of John's closest friends in the fire department, John had been working on a novel this whole time. No, he didn't. And while he was still under suspicion, he began sending copies to agencies in the hopes that he could add published author to his repertoire of work. He's so cool. We love we love a criminal that 
writes out their crimes in a yeah. novel. I was going to say, we actually do like it when criminals write books because then we normally get like a play-by-play because they're dumb and they write it in there. Yes. So in one accompanying letter to a publisher, he made the following statement, quote, my work is a fact-based novel of an ongoing investigation here on the West Coast. A serial arsonist is setting fires throughout the West and is quite possibly a firefighter. The series has been going on for over five years, and I was even considered a suspect at one point. In early May of this year, I found a radio tracking device attached to my car in San Luis Obispo while I attended a a training conference. Ironically, my protagonist experiences the same situation. I had already written the chapter dealing with the protagonist being tailed before I found out that I was being followed. By the way, I'm not the arsonist, and the investigation out here continues. My work is fictional. (laughs) So in his book, did he write it so that the arsonist was the main character who was being tailed? Yes. Oh, my God. Just like, by the way, like, I'm not. Like, I know you might think, but I'm not. But really. I'm, not. I'm, I'm not. not, though. Like, it's fake. It's a joke. <laughs> oh, my God. He's so stupid. After sending copies to the publishing agencies, John also sent a copy to Fire Marshal Chris Gray, who started to read it and immediately was like, uh, no, and handed it over to the ATF agents. And he explained to them that many of the scenarios had to be from experience. Yeah, they're like, you can't make this shit up. Because he was writing details that on cases that he was not an investigator on. He was stupid enough to write about cases that he didn't even... Like, if you only wrote about the cases you investigated, then you could... There's doubt there you know there's like okay well of course you know all the details because you were the investigator but he was writing about all of these fires and he he was not involved in all of them so stupid and he's like yeah but i said it was fiction so you have to believe me most disturbing to gray was the graphic detail written about how the arsonist in the book would get an erection and sexual gratification every time he set fire as well as an escalation in the story to a woman being raped during the fire by the end of the book. So, um, just uh, we have no we have no reason to believe that that is fictional either. Like, yeah, we have no idea if he ever actually did rape somebody during. Yeah, but we that. have no reason to believe that it's not true, other than the fact that we don't have a victim. Like, well, I mean, that had, came forward. Came forward. Yeah. yeah. But if everything else is true, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck. I still say it's Donald Trump. But (laughs) yeah, the parallels between the pillow pyro Mm -hmm. and uh, John's book. Did his his main character also have a name? What did they call him? Aaron. His name was Aaron. I meant like, did he have like a moniker? Oh, um, I don't know. Not that they mentioned. Mm. So I don't know. It gets worse. He didn't just talk about the fires. The he- linen lieutenant. Sorry. <laughs> I had to come up with something. <laughs> the linen lieutenant. He had even included the four deaths from the 1984 Oles fire. 
And all he did was change the names of the victims. That's so disrespectful. But he kept the details that two of them were a grandmother and her toddler grandson. Even more despicable, though, was that in the story, the protagonist stated something to the effect of it was their own stupidity that killed them because they couldn't get out. So it wasn't his fault that they died. Slow blink. Is this man dead? Because if not, I'm coming for him. He's not. Oh, no. I got to follow through. I'm coming for you. Just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Legally, let me legal the screen. I don't know how you get to him because he's still in prison. Well, that's good. Well, then probably somebody Uh, else will handle it. He's still in prison. Somebody else will handle it. Now that much evidence was pointing to John, the ATF agents went back and interviewed witnesses from the last series of retail fires. Several of the witnesses saw a man that looked an awful lot like John Orr in the store before the fires, but sometimes they said that they saw him over a period of a week or two prior to the fires. Like, he repeatedly came to the store. Oh, God, so terrifying. The investigation continued as they weren't about to bring a sloppy case. Well, yeah. I mean, he is... Literally one of the most prolific arsonists. Yeah, they're not going to mess it up in our lifetime. They're not going to want to take it to court and not have their ducks in a row and lose it. Yes. You know? So once again, they began tracking John's car. And though John managed to evade detection by using his wife's vehicle at least twice, there was still serious evidence pointing in his direction. Can I just say that that's really inconvenient for his wife because if he was to get caught in his wife's car, then her car becomes a crime scene and then and then his car is also already a crime scene because it's his. And so then she's vehicleless. Oh, well. Oh, no. It gets better. <laughs> what I'm about to say next, it gets better. Okay. He clearly doesn't give a shit about his wife. I mean, I kind of figured, but still. Just for those of you at home, if you get arrested in somebody else's car... Their car has to be impounded and go. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a crime scene, so yeah. a problem. On November 22nd of 1991, the set of the show, The Waltons, at the Warner Brothers studio, burned, destroying the beloved TV home and burning intensely enough that they could not pinpoint the origin. Oh, no. Two but I bet somebody does know where it is. Two strange things, though. John's wife had just started working for Warner Brothers. Oh, no. And John somehow managed to show up first and at the right gate, even though dispatch had given out the incorrect address the first time and the rest of those responding had gone to the wrong gate. Oh, so he just was really lucky. Yeah. Investigators finally had a bit of a break when another fire captain happened to see John near the site of yet another fire just shortly after the Warner Brothers incident. The other captain happened to pull up next to John at a traffic light. He took notice that John was not in his city-issued car, but a different car. The two men exchanged waves, and when the light changed, John sped ahead, making a quick left turn. Just 10 to 15 minutes later, when that other captain was driving back that way, 
he heard sirens rushing in that direction for what turned out to be another fire. So now they could put him in proximity to another fire by someone who knew it was him. Yeah, exactly. So that was it. They were ready to arrest John, but he was ahead of them. Unfortunate. It was the weekend, and he had dropped off his department-issued vehicle at City Hall and took off for a long weekend away with his wife. The one that conveniently, like, almost just got really hurt in a fire. Well, I don't know that she got hurt, because the Waltons TV set, I don't know what many people are around, because it's an oh. old TV show. I mean, I it uh, was tied up. Like, it was done by... Oh, I see. So it was, like, kind of like a relic more than, yes. like, an active set. Yeah. I thought the implication was that he thought she would be there. Oh, no. It's okay. just that he gained access. He had access because she worked there. I see. Okay. And then I said, he obviously doesn't give a shit because she had just started working there. And then you go and set fire yeah. to her work. Like, she's going to get fired, my dude, when they find out she's the reason you were yeah. on the lot. So, John and his wife go away for their weekend. I honestly kind of question, like, did he know they were coming for him? And that's why he took her away for a weekend away. Um, Because he wasn't known for doing stuff like that. Yeah. But in any case, they returned home just in time for John to start his work week the following day. He wouldn't make it to work, though. As he made his way outside to the car that morning, federal agents appeared out of everywhere. Like, Uh. they would just start popping up. (laughs) They literally literally come out of the neighbor's bushes and around the corners of his house, and then they suddenly pull up in a vehicle and block his driveway. I want to watch that. Yeah. Agents in a bush. Agents in the bush. Oh, there's a sex joke in there somewhere. We're going to move on. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is the case to make sex jokes. Yeah, exactly. So after his arrest, he was taken to an LAPD station by some agents while others stay behind at the house to search after presenting his wife with a search warrant. And she's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, she was shocked. shocked and mad at first, but they said that like, after everything kind of set in, by the time they were done searching, she was kind of just resigned to like, okay. Okay. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. In the initial interview, John never denied setting fires and even challenged the ATF agents to find a motive. That's quite rude. Uh, Your motive is to get off, jerkwad. He spent most of the interview attempting to use law enforcement tactics on the agents to find out how much they actually had on him. John's only slip-up was when one of the agents asked if he would be willing to talk to them about why he set the fires once he was convinced that they had a case against him. Yeah. He's blowing my mind. John's response was that he would not close the door on that. Bruh. (laughs) During the search, much of the evidence against John was found in a bag that he almost always carried with him. So they found it in the car, I think in like the back seat of the yeah. car. They found two packs of cigarettes, matches, rubber bands, yellow lined paper, and a fake police badge. What in the woody? Yes. 
he was also carrying a significant amount of black powder. Just, like, black powder? I'm assuming they mean black powder used for... Like, ammunition. Yeah. Yeah. But they use the term black powder, so I'm using the term black powder. Okay. Um, and he had guns aplenty. John regularly carried at least one gun on his person, which actually, yes, like if you want more, like there is so much more to the story than I'm yeah. <laughs> touching on. Because as a firefighter arson investigator, they have a lot of the same powers that police officers do. Yeah, like he so can make arrests and stuff. He ha- yeah, he's done... He's made arrests. He's, like, chased people down, even when it wasn't really his place to do so. Yeah, okay. So there's some more details in that in some of my sources, if you're interested in just hearing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's fa- This is a fascinating case. Like, I-, I might look into it because crazy. It is. It's cuckoo. Cuckoo, cuckoo bananas. bananas. Cuckoo cocoa nuts. Um, they also uncovered guns like all throughout his house just hidden that's all so weird and not safe please practice gun safety yes with several eyewitnesses describing seeing and or interacting with a man matching john's description as well the circumstantial evidence continued to pile up so despite what we like john was out on bond no, because I know exactly what's going to happen. Well, no. He's going to go set a fire. No, not necessarily. That would have been, well, maybe not the smart thing to do, but he doesn't. Okay. I'll give that away. He doesn't. What He didn't have time for that, basically, oh, okay. because he had to act as his own investigator to save money. Because, after all, he is not a man who is going to settle for just any defense attorney. Nay, nay. No. He chose an up-and-coming hotshot that cost in upwards of $40,000 for the initial retainer. Holy smoke. That's a lot now. And that was in 92. Yeah. Yeah. So, he's working on his case. And what does any sociopathic narcissistic personality do when working on their own defense case i am scared for what you're gonna say that's right he busted out his chest hair Mm -hmm. and called the media oh not the media hold on let me just uh unbutton this second button here (laughs) hey you call the news (laughs) John convinced one of his longtime reporter friends to publish an interview where he proclaimed his innocence and portrayed himself as a loving family man. Now, for anyone thinking, well, arsonist and family man are not mutually exclusive, you'd be right, except in this case. (laughs) Except, no, you're not. Not now. For the sake of time, I've left out quite a bit. Like I said, I kind of summarized on... His role as a husband, haven't really touched on what kind of father he was much at all. But if you'd like some insight on that, I recommend reading the book in my sources to understand why I think calling John a family man is comical. He's not. So, psych you thought. 
I don't really know what he thought the news thing was going to accomplish, except maybe just try to get it out there to make it a little bit. Well, obviously thought he thought that if he broke out his Tom Selleck chest hair, <laughs> that he would have ladies flocking. But they'd be like, no, they'd pick it he at didn't his trial. do it. There's He's no innocent. way. Yeah, well, that didn't happen. And the first trial took place in Fresno. And on July 31st, 1992, a jury found John guilty of setting three of the fires in the Central Valley area, but actually acquitted him on two arson counts. Just circumstantial stuff, right? Like, they just couldn't, without a reasonable doubt, say it was him kind of thing. Yeah, which I touch on. He was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison and ordered to pay $225,971 in restitution for the 1987 Kraft Mart and Hancock Fabrics fires in Bakersfield. And What's then, crazy is oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's and then that the third fire was the smaller fire that took place at the Family Bargain Center in mm-hmm. Tulare. What's crazy is I feel like that's and I, I'm not saying that I disagree because I do agree with it. I think that 30 years is a long time. Like I, that's good. He should be in jail for mm-hmm. that long. But I'm sh- kind of surprised that it is that long, considering how lenient our court systems can be with certain crimes. Yeah, fascinating. I don't know. I'm just saying that, like, not to be, uh, this isn't to be political. This is straight up just to talk about the legalities of it. Like, if he was on trial for raping three women, he wouldn't have gone 30 years in prison. Probably not. So it's interesting to me. Yeah. That it's so much. That's good. He should be in jail for it. It's, it's destructive and it's dangerous and it it's all sorts of negligent all over it. I mean, is it negligent if it's intentional? But I mean, like, what he intended was to set fire. He didn't intend to hurt people. I guess. Depends on who you ask. Yeah. I, I don't think his intention was ever to kill anybody. I just. Because if it was, he would have owned that. In his book. For yeah, sure. that's what I'm saying. In his book, he would have owned it. But also, I think if that was, he was so good at this that I think if he intended to kill people, more people would, would be have dead. died. Yeah. Because it's crazy. Yeah. So the other two counts that he was acquitted on were the two two of the fires in 1987 as well, but that took place in Fresno. Uh, even though one of them matched an excerpt from his book called Points of Origin. Don't buy it, please. <laughs> um, Wait, you can still buy it? I think so. But he Maybe. He, he won't make money off of it, mm, though. We'll get to that. <gasps> There simply was not enough other evidence that he did those. Yeah. So he got acquitted on those. But obviously there's more fires. So that was just the first few. Uh, John went on to plead guilty at his second trial for three more counts of arson. It was the two Atascadero fires in 1989 and the 1990 Builders Emporium fire in North Hollywood. He basically just did that. He just pled guilty as part of a plea deal so that his sentences could be served concurrently. Mm -hmm. Now, you might be thinking, that's great and all, but what about the Oli's fires where four people died? Have no fear. It took a while, but in 1998, Los Angeles prosecutor charged John with four counts of murder and 21 counts of arson including the Warner Brothers lot fire 
that had destroyed the beloved Walton's house. Oh, gosh. That must have been a bitch to try. <laughs> like, that prosecutor. Well, the judge made it a little easier. Oh, that's good. Yes. Because I'm sitting here thinking, like, oh, my God, that's a lot of work. Yes. To try for that many. Well, yeah. I mean, his first conviction was in 92, and this is in 1998. So they took four years to, yeah. like, put their case together. It, and it straight up would have taken that long. Yeah. To get everything done. Absolutely. That's crazy. Of course, this being California, multiple murders qualified John for a possible death penalty sentence. Oh. This, I should probably say California at the time. Yeah, they don't know. now. Yeah, I didn't think that they do I don't they think do they now. do. Um, Doesn't seem very Californian. No. I mean, their laws, though, they were actually strict. I don't know. Do they still have the three strikes law? Oh, I don't know. Because they <laughs> had, like, if you had a third felony, like, you were just, it was like an automatic life sentence, no matter what it was for, if you had three strikes against you. Yes, but they've changed it a little. That would make sense. It was a bit. It was a bit rough. Like I heard about it through some cases that um, you were like, "What? They're gonna go to- away for life for that?" Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit because now we've talked about it, and I feel like we need an explanation. Yeah. Um, so I'm reading from. I think this is a law firm website, which is not always the best, but it's just you're getting the vibe. How does the three-strike rule work? In California, prison sentencing for three-strike defendants must be longer and more severe than those without prior strikes for the same felony. If you're convicted of three or more violent or serious felonies, your prison sentence could be 25 years to life. Basically, if somebody else was to go, so like a newbie was to come up with the same felony as somebody who has three strikes in that same felony, the three strikes has to be harder than the newbies. Yes. And it could be a life sentence. So it doesn't have to be a life sentence, but they're saying that they have, you have to publish it. it used to be like a definitive I think so too. life sentence. And also your third offense doesn't have to be a violent or serious felony. Yeah, that's what it was. You're, yeah. Apparently it's pretty costly and ineffective. It fails to reduce crime rates. Doesn't really help much. Yeah. The more you know. The more you know. Well, thanks for looking that up. You know, I can't stand to not know things. All right. So the judge allowed. Sorry. Sorry for my little chuckle. Uh, The judge allowed the prosecution to use everything. Oh, really? Including evidence from previous convictions and John's own writing in both the book and the letters to the publishers. Good. Still. The prosecution, as you said, had their work cut out for them. Yeah, because that almost makes it that almost makes it harder because you have so much more evidence to process. Yeah. If they had said this isn't admissible, you could you could take it off your plate and ignore it and just focus on what you have. Yeah. What they had to essentially prove was that what John wrote in his book was in fact what happened at the Oli's fire, the first Oli's fire, and not what the fire chief at the time had said. Because he said it was an accident. Yes. The greatest... That's an interesting way to phrase what they had to prove. That they were really proving that the book was right. Yeah. I mean, because in That's order true. to convict him for the murders, they had to prove that it was arson and not what the fire chief had said. 
Yeah. But it's interesting to me that they went the route of proving that the book was the correct story instead of just planting doubt in the in what the fire chief said. Yes. Which I mean, you're not you have to you're supposed to provide alternative, you know, if you're mm-hmm. saying it's not that, but like in this case they probably could have just said Nope, and this guy did everything else, and well, like, yeah, they had I all this other evidence. Like, if the book had not been allowed into evidence, then absolutely, I think they would have had to do what you said, just plant yeah. doubt that like we don't actually think this is what happened because da 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 da. But because they could put the book, and that fire was very <laughs> well written into the book, including down to those little details about the victims, so. It was a matter of like, yeah, we think this is what really happens. The greatest challenge with that, though, would be getting the jury to find the testimony of the firefighters and police officers credible while also believing that some of those same firefighters and police officers were incompetent enough to bungle the Oli's investigation. Yeah, that's a fine line for sure. Not to mention the guy you're trying is an arson investigator for the fire department. So, yeah. Yes. Tough job. Fortunately, what helped them was that the facts about the roofing materials and the fire doors worked in their favor. Yeah. I kind of said that weird. My apologies. But the actual facts about all of those things, they had experts come in and basically teach the jury about how all of these things work. And so that all pointed to, no, it wasn't an accident. Another piece of damning evidence was a seemingly small detail about the Ole's fire in John's book that I think you could agree that it's a little more than coincidental. I'm just throwing that out there. That's my opinion. In Points of Origin, John wrote the arsonist making reference to a conversation he overheard the woman and her toddler grandson who both perished in the fire having. This conversation was about going to ice cream, specifically at Baskin Robbins. Good choice in ice cream, please. Well, Billy Deal, Ada's husband who had made it out of the fire, testified that he and Ada had told Matthew on their way into the store that they would take him for ice cream after shopping as long as he behaved in the store. Now, is it weird to think that a grandparent's going to take a two-year-old for ice cream? No, but it's super specific. but it was very specific. Yeah. It's just there's too many. It's It's, not It's all circumstantial. Yeah. If you pick it apart, yeah, that could be coincidence. That could be coincidence. But when all of these coincidences are all happening, it's just not... Mm-hmm. That being said, that wasn't the only parallel in John's book. Everything from the character description of the arsonist, the description of the arsonist's home, and details about multiple other fires in John's book matched or was eerily similar to real life. Arguably, one of the dumbest parallels is when John wrote that the arsonist set fires under the exact circumstances that happened in real life. For example, the arsonist in the book set a second fire in another department store because he was mad that the first fire was deemed an accident. Mm. You know, just like the second Ollie's fire was set ablaze just two months after the real one was deemed an accident. But, you know, I think that's a coincidence. 
that they're the same. I mean, like, you know, he said in his letter he wasn't the arsonist, so. Yeah, clearly. Clearly he's not. Another ridiculous example is when the fictional arsonist set multiple fires during and after an arson investigators conference in Fresno, California. (laughs) Bruh, you're kidding me. Yeah. What the heck? And those fires, if you didn't piece that together already, those are the fires that John had just been convicted of. (laughs) Yeah. So, So, like, they're like, yeah, well, I mean, obviously. John also wrote about multiple fires that had never been publicly linked to the pillow pyro and were not in his jurisdiction to investigate. Therefore, he should not know the details. Altogether, the prosecution connected 45 points in the book that matched real-life details. John's defense team mainly relied on timelines, claiming he couldn't have set some of the smaller supposed decoy fires and the big ones like Ole's. They pointed out the conflicts in eyewitness testimonies and chalked up John's book to real bad writing. It's just bad. Like, obviously. What in the world is wrong with people? (laughs) This is ridiculous. The defense attorney also claimed that the detail about Ada Deal taking her grandson Matthew out for ice cream after shopping could have absolutely been a coincidence because it's so common for people to do that with children. And anyone in the Pasadena area knows about Baskin Robbins. Yeah, they have, what is it, 32 flavors? Is it 30? I thought it was 31. How many flavors does Baskin <laughs> Robbins have? 31, you're right. I was close. I was close. <laughs> I'm just That's trying so to good. find some light because this is just ridiculous. Yeah. One of the most salvageable things the defense team could have done was appeal to the jury's humanity and convince them that John is a good guy or at least likable. But it's just like, it's, it's honestly just the chest hair. Like, impossible. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, it's just not, you're, you're distracted by the chest hair and you can't see. It's impossible. This isn't working. People were saying, like, he showed absolutely no remorse. Like, he, yeah, he's he not did not sorry. care. He he's not, not sorry. After 23 days in trial and six days of deliberation, the jury found John guilty. So began the penalty phase of the trial. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty and brought as much evidence as they could showing it was the best sentence for a man who seemed irredeemable. This included information about 40 more arsons that they suspected John was responsible for, but did not charge him with. There were so many arsons? I don't feel like that's really a problem these days. Like, No, because now I think the science of catching arsonists has it's gotten so, so much better. Easy, yeah. There's so many more places with fire safety, sprinkler systems. Well, and surveillance get, is so... And surveillance, yes. I think that it's gotten better because it's just not as easy to yeah. do. Yeah. Wow. And I think there's other things that weirdos can <laughs> True. figure out to do. I don't just know. YouTube video f- uh, fireplace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, my husband loves that. I love him, too. I love him, too. I'm all into, like, the ambient world yeah. YouTube channel where it's just, like, you know, like, studying in the Gryffindor common room. <laughs> ambient noise. I love it. It's the best. Hey, as long as you can have sex without it going. 
more power to you. <laughs> oh my god, hold on, babe. I gotta turn on ambient world. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So prosecutors called for testimony from several individuals, including the family members of those who died in the Olay's fire. The defense team was also permitted to have mitigating testimony from those who still supported John, which was few, and the hope that he would be at least spared from death. Obviously, he was already found guilty. They're just trying to spare him from the death penalty. They mostly used his family members in an attempt to portray him as a loving family man. And while I don't know that she comes right out and says it in the book that's in my sources it's Mm -hmm. co-written by one of his daughters oh okay yeah she kind of alludes to like should i have spared him should i have testified like i really yeah but like that's a tough position for them to ask you to be in yes and she was relatively young she was young at the time and she wasn't a kid but she was she was young and sorry we're dropping things i dropped my phone she's laughing at me sorry (laughs) Because oh. I was messing with the pop socket. It's my own fault. <laughs> and honestly, I'm sure that anybody who understands, like, being asked to do such a thing, yeah. like, how do you, even if she believed that he was guilty at the time, which she didn't because she believed him because that's her dad. her dad. But even if she did, like, he wouldn't want to see him die. Like, that's- Yeah, and that's a risk. And everything is so circumstantial. So he's just like, they're afraid. Like, you know, like, you don't know what he's telling her. And yes, the poor thing. That kind of sucks that she is now in the position where she feels like she doesn't know if she did the right thing. Yeah. But I don't think that there was a right thing or a wrong thing, babes. You're yeah. Just, you're just making choices based on what you got, and that's all you can do. Yeah. Well, I don't know that it would have helped either way. Like, I don't really know. It doesn't. Because of this. The jury deliberated about the sentencing for 10 days. Oh, before. that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a lot. It was a lot to cover, though. I mean, if you think about it and how many things they were talking about, 10 days really isn't that much. Yeah. Um, they finally approached the judge stating that they were deadlocked. Eight to four. Really? Eight to four in favor of the death penalty. Oh, well, you know, they're deadlocked because it's the death penalty, though. Yeah. Like, if it had just been jail time. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I mean, like, I don't really know that her testifying or not testifying relate because ultimately I think that there were just four people who either didn't believe in the death penalty yeah. or didn't think that arson yeah. was worth the death penalty. Which in this, and we've talked about my opinion on the death penalty too. It's not that I have any, I mean, I don't think that we should kill people in general, <laughs> but my main issue with it is that you're putting it in the hands of civilians. Yeah. And so this is why, because now eight of those people or four of those people have to decide, okay, do I feel comfortable killing somebody basically? Yep. And that's not what they're doing, but that's how they feel. That's how I would feel if I was on that jury. Well, yeah, you're making the decision. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, that's my only issue with it. Um, not my only issue, but my main issue with it. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're deadlocked, the judge brings you in. He asked each one of the jurors, and each one of them agreed that it was not going to be possible to come to an agreement. Yeah. If, way. Nobody's changing their minds. Like, yes. So Because ju- that's an ethics issue. It's not a facts issue. Yes, exactly. So the judge then called the attorneys in, had a meeting with them, and ultimately John joined them in the otherwise nearly empty courtroom. They, like, emptied the place out. Yeah. Which they normally do anyway. They said in death penalty cases, they try to keep 
the yeah. crowd, the number of people in the courtroom to a minimum. They have extra guards. Yeah. Because people tend to have strong reactions one way or the other. The families of the Oli's victims were obviously devastated. The judge's statement regarding the conviction characterized John's arson spree as especially sophisticated and violent. He then proceeded to sentence John to four consecutive life sentences and ordered him to pay $90. Only $90. Less than a speeding ticket. $90,000 in restitution. So John appealed, citing the following. The court was wrong for admitting evidence about the Atascadero arson just because it was similar to the Bakersfield fires and because he was in the vicinity of Atascadero when it was set. Number two, um, I said I didn't do it, so <laughs> exactly. I didn't do it. <laughs> the court made an error by allowing the evidence of the bag found in his car because, quote, the contents probative value was substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. So breaking that down, it basically says that the likelihood of this evidence suggesting guilt on an improper basis outweighs the probability of this evidence to prove the fact that he was the one that set the fires. Or more simplistically, you can't show that evidence because it's going to make me look guilty, (laughs) even though anyone could technically be carrying around cigarettes, matches, rubber bands, and yellow lined paper. Right? <laughs> like, technically, they could. I have all of those things in my house, so... But do you carry them all no. in a bag, in but a what car? If, but what if I did? What if I needed to take some notes? I had to light some candles. I had... You know, everybody needs rubber bands, and I've started smoking. He did... Oh, I, I didn't even touch on that yet. He was never a smoker. <laughs> so he just bought cigarettes for arson. Yes. I love it. Oh, that's so stupid. And I know the judge was like, you're ridiculous. Yes. The court's next error was allowing John's books and letters to the publishers into evidence as it, too, created the danger of unfair prejudice. Um, I could see how some attorneys would say that yes. that is not allowed. Yeah. Because for a million different reasons. Well, but the judge like, said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. No, I don't think because the reality is I don't think it matters. Like... It's just the damning piece of evidence, but they still had a steaming pile of co- of like circumstantial yes. stuff, and I don't think it really. And they had the difference. fingerprint. Honestly, yeah. I question if they hadn't have had the fingerprint. Yeah, that I would... don't know that the judge would have been so lenient on every allowing everything. Yeah, because he would have been like, eh, stuff matters. Yeah. Like, but they had the fingerprint. And that said a lot. I mean, it was pretty open and shut. So this one might be my favorite. Oh, God. Okay. Or claims that the discarding of a cigarette butt used in setting one of the fires violated his due process rights. Which due process right? <laughs> Does he know what the know, word due process is? I don't know that it even <laughs> says, to be honest, and I couldn't get past that. I was like, that's us. That's all. I'm done. So you're saying... That because I threw my cigarette butt, I did this violation of my constitutional rights. But again, rights. he doesn't smoke. But he doesn't smoke, so. <laughs> Finally, John next challenged the court's denial of his motion for acquittal, that the previous convictions should have been reviewed separately, 
the handling of the yellow paper bearing his fingerprint, and the restitution order. So, of course, the appeals court response was... Ain't wrong. Eat glass. (laughs) Eat glass. If you know what that's from, you're my friend. (laughs) Seriously, though, they affirmed everything the trial court did with one very sad modification. Unfortunately... The trial judge mistakenly omitted a rather important part of the written restitution order in the oral pronouncement. And according to California law, which requires the judges to state orally in front of the court what is written in the order. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if you don't do that, it means trouble. The part that he failed to state orally is, quote, that any proceeds realized from the commercialization by defendant of defendant's book, Points of Origin, or any other book, movie, or television screenplay of the same or similar subject matter shall be applied to the balance of restitution. So he can make money off of the book and not have to give it to them. The appeals court stated in their opinion that when the written judgment and oral pronouncement differ, the latter must control. Therefore, they deemed that it must be stricken from the judgment and any proceeds John receives from his story must be treated like any other income. Slow blink. Yes. I get how we got here, but it's dumb. (laughs) Yes. Now, not to end on an even sadder note, but years went by and John's daughter, Lori, who co-wrote the book, She began to really face the truth about John. Apparent herself by then, she realized John never really did much to protect her or her sister for many years. And then she had spent years corresponding with him through letters while he's in prison, and she simply felt like he just used them to manipulate her. It was always about what he wanted rather than a loving father-daughter relationship. So she began doing research on her own and getting therapy to work through her feelings on it. Mm -hmm. She came to the conclusion that she really was thinking like, yeah, you look guilty. Yeah. (laughs) And obviously she's tired of feeling manipulated. So she wrote him one last letter stating that if he is in fact innocent, she was going to need him to explain to her in detail how all of this was possible. Fair enough. His response came two weeks later and was pretty much just, you will see how innocent I am when I get out of jail. (laughs) Okay. Obviously, she said, eat glass. She cut off contact. And when she started talking to other family members about that, about the fact that she no longer talked to him and that she was really thinking he was guilty now, Several of them began telling her stories of things that happened long before his conviction that included one of them catching John with cigarettes early on in his fire career, so long before he became an arson investigator. Wow. And they questioned him because they're like, you're not a smoker. What are you doing with cigarettes? And John admitted that he was starting small brush fires, but said, don't worry about it because I keep it under control, so I make sure that they don't hurt anybody. But why were you starting brush fires? Mm -hmm. Some other family members claimed that John had raped a younger family member when John himself was just 12 years old. Oh, my gosh. 
Apparently, his parents never bothered to get him any sort of professional help, and they all just pretended like it didn't happen. What the There's fuck that, is wrong with people? That perfect nuclear family. Yeah, everything's great. Another told Lori that they had been told, I don't know who told them this, I kind of got the impression that John himself told them this, but okay. I don't know, um, that John was so rough with one of his wives that he made her play Russian roulette during sex with his guns. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I know I already spilled the beans on where he is, but all I could say is hallelujah. He in jail. He in jail. He's, he's still sitting stay in, in California state prison. I personally think that the multiple consecutive life sentences was the least that he deserved. Yeah, absolutely. So, Well, that is the story of the pillow pyro. That was an intense ending to an overall great case. That was great coverage. You did a fantastic job. Thank you. There's so much. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are interested, I got a lot of my information out of that book, but there's a lot of details Mm-hmm. that are in it that I had to just like you got to start cutting it off at some I point. had to yeah. skip over I was I did it as an audiobook so that way it's easier for me to like take notes mm-hmm. as I'm listening too. and it was just a lot a lot of interesting details but a lot that I had to yeah. take out so well I yeah. hope that this case was a little bit of a palate cleanser from the last two weeks that we've had with uh, or the last three weeks that we've been the last case we covered was Lori Vallow, yeah, and I know case. I saw some people saying that it was a little bit intense for them and that it was really heavy, so yeah. hopefully this is a good palate cleanser because we had a lot of laughs, and yeah, so I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. It was a good way to start our little summer break because we were recording this in advance so that Alicia and I can both take um, a week off. Yes. So All right. Well, well, I hope you enjoyed. Hope you enjoy. Bye. Thanks for listening. See you Bye. next week. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com. Bye.